Welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. On this episode, we'll go over the topic of prenatal care from the obstetrics section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 26-year-old G1P0 woman presents to the obstetrician for her first prenatal visit. An ultrasound is performed which shows a fetus with a gestational age of 8 weeks and 5 days. The crown rump length, or CRL, which can be used to estimate gestational age, is measured to be 2.08 centimeters in this fetus. She is estimated to be approximately 8 weeks gestation. She notes that she has experienced increased fatigue and occasional nausea, but no major complaints. The patient is a recent immigrant from Mexico and has no immunization records with her and does not recall her vaccination history. She is sexually active with only her husband and has no history of sexually transmitted infections. The obstetrician takes a thorough medical history, performs a physical examination, informs her about the course of pregnancy, and explains details of the laboratory studies that will be performed at the current visit and subsequent visits. Now, let's get into the episode. As a quick introduction, prenatal care helps to ensure the birth of a healthy baby while also maintaining a healthy pregnancy for the mother. This includes accurate estimation of gestational age, identifying pregnancies at increased risk for maternal or fetal morbidity slash mortality, preventing morbidity during pregnancy, and providing a transition to a healthy labor and birth. In terms of timing of prenatal care, the initial prenatal visit will be at 8 to 10 weeks of pregnancy. However, it can be earlier if the patient is at risk for an ectopic pregnancy. Subsequent prenatal visits occurs every 4 weeks for the first 28 weeks, and then every 2 to 3 weeks until 36 weeks gestation, and then every week after 36 weeks gestation. The initial prenatal visit involves assessment, education slash counseling, as well as routine lab slash diagnostic studies. The assessment includes initial history and physical exam, family medical history, genetic history, general examination to confirm pregnancy, assessing for tobacco, alcohol, and or drug use, screen for domestic violence, screen for depression, and provide prescriptions for prenatal vitamins and iron supplementation. Education slash counseling will include informing the patient about the expected course of the pregnancy, You will also discuss recommendations for 30 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise 5 to 7 days a week, however, avoiding contact sports or activities with a high fall risk. You will also discuss routine lab studies and testing, and discuss genetic counseling and prenatal diagnostic testing, for example, cystic fibrosis carrier screening and hemoglobinopathy screening for individuals of African, Southeast Asian, and Mediterranean descent. You will also discuss any high-risk conditions. Routine lab-slash-diagnostic studies will include a blood type and screen, complete blood count, platelet count, hepatitis B surface antigen, syphilis screening test, screening for gestational diabetes if the patient is at high risk, and know that risk factors for gestational diabetes mellitus includes a pre-pregnancy BMI of greater than or equal to 30 and or previous history of gestational diabetes. Other diagnostic studies include an HIV screening test, cervical cancer screening with a pap smear, urine dipstick for protein and glucose levels, urine culture and sensitivity test, and know that asymptomatic bacteruria should be treated in pregnant women. Other diagnostic studies include chlamydia screening, gonorrhea screening for women at risk for sexually transmitted infections, and know that risk factors for sexually transmitted infections include age less than 25 years old, previous sexually transmitted infections, new or multiple sex partners, inconsistent condom use, and commercial sex work. Another diagnostic study is a rubella titer, However, if not already immune, do not administer the vaccine during pregnancy, because remember the MMR, or measles, mumps, and rubella, is a live vaccine. Another diagnostic study is TSH, 
and know that hypothyroid women should have their dose of levothyroxine increased if found to be pregnant. This is because during pregnancy, there are increasing circulating levels of thyroxine binding globulin, or TBG, and increased plasma volume, which will increase the demand for T4. The initial prenatal visit can also include an inactivated influenza vaccination. Now, let's talk about subsequent prenatal visits. So every visit will include vital signs, weight, fetal assessment beginning after 10 weeks gestation, uterine science assessment, domestic violence screening, assessment of tobacco use and exposure, and urine dipstick for protein and glucose levels. At weeks 11 to 14 of pregnancy, these visits will include education about breastfeeding, screening tests for aneuploidy, particularly in women with increased risk of aneuploidy, you can offer the option of chorionic villus sampling or second trimester amniocentesis. At weeks 15 to 20 of pregnancy, an anatomic survey ultrasound should be done at 18 to 20 weeks. This time frame should also include neural tube defect screening, which will include a maternal serum alpha-fetoprotein, or MSAFP. At weeks 24 to 28 of pregnancy, you should repeat the type and screen, and if RH negative, administer RH immunoglobulin. In this time frame, you should also screen for gestational diabetes and discuss postpartum contraception. At weeks 32 to 34 of pregnancy, repeat testing for women at increased risk for sexually transmitted infections should be done, including syphilis, HIV, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. At week 36 of pregnancy, determine fetal position, and patients should also undergo group B strep screening. At week 38 of pregnancy, provide information about labor and discuss postpartum contraception again. Finally, at greater than 41 weeks of pregnancy, discuss labor induction. Now, let's talk about estimating gestational age by uterine size. So at 12 weeks, the uterus will be at the pubic symphysis. At 16 weeks, it will be midway from the symphysis to the umbilicus. At 20 weeks, it will be at the umbilicus. And at 20 to 36 weeks, know that the height in centimeters above the pubic symphysis correlates with weeks of gestation. Now, let's talk about timing of major prenatal tests. So the first trimester screen will be done at 11 to 14 weeks of gestational age. As far as the details of the first trimester screen, you will do an ultrasound for nuchal translucency. A first trimester screen will also include pregnancy-associated plasma protein A, or PAP-A, where decreased levels are seen in chromosomal abnormalities. The first trimester screen should also include an HCG, where increased levels are seen in chromosomal abnormalities. Moving on to cell-free fetal DNA, this will be done at approximately 10 weeks of gestational age. This analyzes the fetal DNA in the maternal blood and screens for trisomies of 13, 18, and 21. Positive test results should be followed by chorionic villus sampling, or CVS, or amniocentesis. Chorionic villus sampling, or CVS, is typically done at 11 to 14 weeks of gestational age. As far as details, this will involve collecting placental tissue to test for chromosomal and genetic abnormalities. A quadruple screen is done at 16 to 18 weeks of gestational age, and this involves an AFP, HCG, estriol, and inhibin. Increased AFP suggests neural tube or abdominal wall defects. Increased HCG and inhibin and decreased AFP and estriol is typical of Down syndrome, and decreased AFP, HCG, and estriol is typical of Edwards syndrome. Amniocentesis is typically done at 15 to 20 weeks of gestational age. This involves collecting amniotic fluid to diagnose chromosomal abnormalities. A glucose challenge test is done at 24 to 28 weeks, and this includes a one-hour glucose challenge test, and if abnormal, this is followed by a glucose tolerance test. 
Finally, a Group B strep test is done at 35 to 37 weeks of gestational age, and this will involve swabbing the lower genital tract for colonization by Group B strep. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. A 26-year-old G3P2002 woman presents to her first prenatal visit. She has a history of allergies for which she takes loratadine. She also takes a prenatal vitamin. She has a history of three symptomatic urinary tract infections over the past four years, all of which resolved with antibiotics. She does not endorse dysuria, increased urinary urgency, or frequency, or hematuria at this time. Her previous pregnancies were uncomplicated and both resulted in vaginal deliveries. Temperature is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 110 over 70 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 60 per minute. And respirations are 17 per minute. Her BMI is 24 kilograms per meter squared. Ultrasound examination demonstrates a fetus at 12 weeks of gestational age. Her laboratory results demonstrate the following. Urine culture shows greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per milliliter of Escherichia coli. What is the next best step in management? And the choices are 1. Cystoscopy. 2. Nitroforantoin. 3. Routine follow-up. 4. Repeat urine culture. And 5. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or TMP-SMX. The correct answer to this question is 2. Nitroforantoin. So this multiparous patient with a history of symptomatic urinary tract infections, or UTI, presents in her first trimester with asymptomatic bacteriuria. She should be treated with nitroforantoin. Typically, asymptomatic bacteriuria is not treated in non-pregnant patients. However, in pregnant patients, asymptomatic bacteriuria is associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes, including low birth weight, preterm birth, and perinatal mortality. Risk factors for asymptomatic bacteriuria includes diabetes mellitus, history of UTIs, and multiparity. Additionally, physiologic changes in pregnancy make women more susceptible to ascending bacterial infections, placing them at risk for cystitis and pyelonephritis. Increased production of progesterone in pregnant patients causes smooth muscle dilation of the ureters, and an increasingly gravid uterus compresses the urinary tract, leading to stasis and increasing the risk for infection. Therefore, all pregnant patients should be screened at their first prenatal visit with a clean-catch midstream urine culture. If greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per milliliter of bacteria are found, typically with E. coli, the patient should be treated with nitroforantoin, cephalexin, amoxicillin clavulanate, or phosphomycin. A repeat urine culture should be obtained after treatment to ensure bacterial eradication. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1. Cystoscopy can be used to evaluate patients when there is suspicion for a complicated cause of recurrent UTIs. Recurrent UTIs are defined as greater than or equal to 2 times in 6 months or greater than or equal to 3 times in a year. This patient does not have recurrent UTI or risk factors for a complicated cause of UTI, such as a history of urinary tract malignancy, surgery, calculi, voiding dysfunction, or trauma. Answer 3. Routine follow-up is often appropriate for asymptomatic bacteriuria in non-pregnant individuals. However, pregnant individuals with asymptomatic bacteriuria are at higher risk for worsened pregnancy outcomes and upper UTI and therefore should be treated. Answer 4. Repeat urine culture should be obtained after treatment with antibiotic therapy to ensure a cure. It is not necessary to repeat the culture before treatment. Finally, answer 5. TMP-SMX is often used to treat E. coli UTI. However, TMP-SMX is a folic acid antagonist and is contraindicated in the first trimester. It can be used in mid-pregnancy. 
To leave you with a bullet summary, pregnant patients should be screened for asymptomatic bacteriuria at their first prenatal visit and treated with antibiotics when they have greater than 100,000 colony-forming units per milliliter of bacteria found on urine culture with nitrofurantoin, cephalexin, amoxicillin clavulanate, or phosphomycin. And moving on to the final question. A 27-year-old G1P0 female presents for her first prenatal visit. She's in a monogamous relationship with her husband and has had two lifetime sexual partners. She's never had a blood transfusion and has never used injection drugs. Screening for which of the following infections is most appropriate to recommend this patient? And the choices are 1. Syphilis and HIV. 2. Syphilis, HIV, and HBV. 3. Syphilis, HIV, HPV, and chlamydia. 4. Syphilis, HIV, and chlamydia. And five, no routine screening is recommended for this patient. The correct answer to this question is two, syphilis, HIV, and HBV. So the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, or USPSTF, recommends that all pregnant women should be screened for syphilis, HIV, and HBV. To quickly review, the first prenatal visit is an important opportunity to ensure the health of the pregnancy. At the first visit, women should routinely be offered a CBC, RH status screen, urinalysis, and culture, as well as TSH. Additionally, all pregnant women should have a rubella titer checked. However, if the titer is negative, the vaccine still should not be administered during pregnancy. Physicians should also routinely discuss the appropriate amount of weight gain the mother should expect and should discuss the need for supplemental vitamins, particularly folate. Myers et al. discussed the USPSTF recommendations for screening for sexually transmitted infections in pregnancy. The USPSTF currently recommends that all women, regardless of risk status, should be screened for hepatitis B, HIV, and syphilis. The USPSTF recommends offering routine screening for chlamydia only to women deemed at increased risk. It is worth noting, however, that the USPSTF considers all women who are younger than the age of 24 and who are sexually active to be at increased risk. Lamb et al. further discussed screening for HPV in pregnancy. Screening is particularly important because perinatally acquired HPV has a 90% chance of becoming chronic. However, with prenatal identification and prophylaxis, the rate of transmission can be reduced by 85-95%. to 95%. It is currently recommended that all pregnant women be routinely screened for HPV during prenatal care and that women with ongoing risk factors should be reevaluated when in labor. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, syphilis and HIV is incorrect, as in addition to syphilis and HIV, routine screening for HBV should be offered in all pregnancies. Answer 3, syphilis, HIV, HBV, and chlamydia is incorrect, as this patient is 27 and does not have any other risk factors for chlamydia, and thus does not need screening. Answer 4, syphilis, HIV, and chlamydia is incorrect, as again, chlamydial screening is unnecessary for this patient, and HBV screening is necessary. Finally, answer 5, no routine screening is recommended for this patient is incorrect as routine screening for syphilis, HIV, and HBV are recommended for all pregnant women regardless of risk factors. That's all for this review about prenatal care. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow MedBullets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast.